Today's show is brought to you by Airtable. Airtable is part spreadsheet, part database, and entirely flexible. Take maintaining an editorial calendar. You need to manage writers, editors, copy editors, social media people, and you got to do it all on tight deadlines. It's a headache, and it can get very confusing very quickly. With Airtable, you can get organized in your own way. That's why leading teams at places like BuzzFeed, Group9, and Time all use Airtable. It is flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everyone on schedule. You can even use it to organize a podcast. Visit Airtable.com slash Digiday today to get $50 in free credits. Hello and welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. On today's show, I talk with Haley Romer. Haley is the publisher of Atlantic Media. It's been about nine months since Lauren Powell Jobs with Emerson Collective acquired a majority stake in Atlantic Media. Haley and I discuss the Atlantic's new ambition, which includes a hiring spree, if you can believe it or not. And we focus in particular on everyone's new favorite topic, the pivot to paid, aka subscriptions. One note, this podcast is now available for early access to our Digiday Plus subscribers. That's our subscription program. If you want to get a head start on our podcast every week, I hope you do. Uh, sign up for Digiday Plus. Just go to digiday.com. You will see the Digiday Plus tab in the menu. And every Monday, then, you can start your week with me and my guests. For more information, go to our site and sign up today. Now, here's my conversation with Haley. Hope you enjoy it. Haley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. I'm excited to be here. Excited to have you. So it's about nine months uh, since Lauren Powell Jobs uh, with Emerson Collective acquired a majority stake in Atlantic. Um, what's changed? Well, it's been an incredibly exciting nine months. Um, first of all, uh, I think, I think in order to sort of understand what will change, you have to kind of look at why Emerson Collective took a majority stake in the Atlantic and where their, where their interests lied in the first place. Um, and I think the really nice part of this acquisition has been about the fact that what the Emerson Collective saw in the Atlantic has been the incredible success that we've had already and, and sort of attributing it to, um, in large part, our heritage, right? But the fact that we've also very strategically built a business based off of our real important heritage today. Um, so when she when she acquired the Atlantic, I think the initial idea was, well, look, I don't need to come in here and sort of save the Atlantic, certainly not from itself. Mm-hmm. What we've been doing over the course of the past um, 10 years, for sure, has been very strategically growing. We've transformed the business from what used to be simply a print magazine to a digital powerhouse to someone that you'd find you know, on virtually every platform really leading the charge in all the ways that media companies are um, experimenting today. And I think we've done it in a way that has enabled us to become profitable, um, but also also in a way where we're maintaining our integrity mm-hmm. always and staying true to ourselves. Yeah, The Atlantic was always, I mean, I, we, we always sort of went to it as, as a success story of right. um, a legacy publisher. I think we can say it. At 160 years, you can say it's a legacy right. publisher. Right, right, right. Uh, and I don't think that's a dirty word. I think, <laughs> I think, I think, probably ten years ago it was a, a bit of a dirty word. People weren't sure how to feel about legacy. They felt like, 
you know, I don't know, does that mean it's old and you've got all of this baggage? But in fact, what we're finding today is that it, it's not. I mean, our legacy enables us to do so much more. And it, mm-hmm. it, it really um, transforms our am- ambition into impact in a way that I think you can't always do without the kind of legacy that we have. So Emerson Collective, this is a business transaction. This is not like a sort of philanthropy situation. Correct. Okay. Correct. Because I mean, there's a lot of billionaires that, right. that dabble in media. Yep. Um, yep. The Emerson Collective is both a for-profit and non-for-profit foundation. Um, and I think that that what this was about was, wow, this is an incredible journalistic institution that has done so much good, both from a business perspective as well as from a journalistic perspective. And is there room for increased impact with that? And I think so. And so, like I said, it wasn't a, we have to save the Atlantic, you know, somebody's got to come in mm-hmm. and do it situation, but it was, wow, the Atlantic has done so many incredible things over the course of the past um, certainly decade and obviously 161 years if you start yeah. from the beginning um, but if you look at the past decade that's where we've really seen the transformation in the business in the brand and where the brand has gotten to be um, larger than it's ever been before and so coming in I think Emerson was sort of saying okay well how do we increase that impact where can we um, continue to make a difference um, from a business perspective to mm-hmm. help the journalistic impact so in February um, you know the the news was put out there hiring spree I think the Times yeah. called it and I, you know, it's it's well timed because uh, there was a drumbeat of negativity um, and just you know bad things were happening. You know, places shutting down yep. or getting sold at fire sale. Uh, don't have to go through all of them, mm-hmm. um, but the idea was you know the Atlantic is gonna is gonna pour on the gas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So exciting. I mean, yeah, the timing of that was interesting, although this has been, you know, things that we've been working on for the past several months, certainly since uh, the acquisition took place. I think so what's the opportunity? What's the, why, this is a time when a lot of people are picking their spots. I yep. think it's it's safe to say they can be, even if they're not cutting overall, they're trimming in, in certain areas and focusing resources right. on, on areas that, that make an impact for their strategy. Right. Yeah, Brian, I think there's so much opportunity. Again, I think because of our heritage, because of our legacy, we've got a foothold um, in in we've got a foothold in readers' minds in terms of trust and credibility. So The Atlantic is a place where people turn to and say, you know what, journalistically, you are independent. We believe in what you're writing. We believe in the truth that you're providing. Um, And there's a huge need for um, credible journalism today, I think. There's no no denying that. And so I think think we definitely occupy that space. Advertiser need, let's get to. (laughs) Um, um, In terms of the opportunity, I'd say we're sort of looking at the brand in a couple of ways right now. The way I break it down in my mind is authenticity, ambition, and impact. And I think, first of all, whatever we do, whether we go on a hiring spree, um, we're, we're looking to expand the brand from an editorial perspective, from a product perspective, from a business perspective, I think the, the most important thing we need to do is be authentic about who we are. I don't think you're going to suddenly see the Atlantic bursting into you know, the, the fashion scene, although you know, um, maybe, maybe we will. But I, I, don't, I don't know that we're aggressively planning um, an expansion that doesn't necessarily make sense for us. So where have we been credible and where do we think we can continue to add value to readers' lives? First and foremost, right? Authenticity. 
ambition. I think like you said, you know, you've looked at the Atlantic for the past decade or so and said the Atlantic is a is a place that has been at the forefront of innovation for a legacy publisher. We have been transforming the business. We've been leading the way in terms of media. Um, how can we ratchet up the ambition in terms of what we're doing? How can we continue to offer incredible experiences for readers, right, that are valuable journalistically, um, but also, you know, technologically? How can we meet them where they are? Can we create new experiences for them to engage with? New and interesting um, 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 platforms to work with. Like, what can we do to continue to um, enhance the way in which people find us? So ratcheting up the ambition and then impact. I think we've always uh, always been striving for journalistic impact, right? The Atlantic, you think, um, is people come to because it's all about making you think differently, um, going deeper on really important subjects. Um, we did a recent survey where we pulled some of our readers, and eighty four percent of them said that the Atlantic does make them think differently on a different uh, on any given topic, which is incredible. And so when you think about that, it's like, what is the what is the room there? What is the runway there or the path for growth on impact? And I think it's huge. And 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 going back to what you just said before, not just journalistically, but from a business perspective too. I mean, we are... Um, You're profitable. You've been profitable for a while, We have right? been. We have been. So do you have to continue to be profitable or is now like the time where you can go into deficit? <laughs> profitability. I, profitability has never been seen as a bad thing as, no, as far as thing. I can tell. That's right. That's right. So I think I think it's it's an important marker for us just to sort of understand, you know, if we can, if, are we running a business that makes sense, right? I mean, so if nothing else, profitability sort of signifies that, wow, you can do this and you can make money. Um, and we've been doing that for several years and I that that is still a goal of ours okay. for sure. Um, and, and I think it's possible. And so for most of our existence, we've been, um, you know, both a B2C and a B2B business catering both to customers. We've had subscribers for, uh, I don't know, the full 160 years, but probably the full 161 years. People have been paying for our um, magazine. That's where the B2C business has been, of course. And the B2B business, of course, is the, is, has been primarily with advertisers, but also with events. You know that we've got a consulting mm -hmm. business. Um, so when we look at the business and we think about impact, you know, how we can grow, we think, gosh, when you look around out there, we're not doing every single thing that can be done, or should we do every single thing that can be done on behalf of a media company. But what we can do is more of the things that make sense for our audience, more of the things we hear our audience telling us that they want. Um, and audiences on both sides, audiences from a consumer perspective, audiences from an advertising perspective. So give me some examples of ambition that you're undertaking now. Not in the past, not, not courts. I mean, it's been a few years now, but give me some ideas of areas that make sense for you to be ambitious in and now you have the resources yeah. that you, you can do it. Sure, sure. So we announced, uh, I think it was mid-March that we are launching um, a new, this is not the best word, but I guess I'll call it section, but a new um, dedicated topic terrain for the Atlantic, which is the family. And if you think about some of the most important pieces that the Atlantic has published, again, I'll just I'll just go back to the to the last decade as a point of reference, but certainly throughout our history, um, you know, we published pieces asking big questions about people's lives today, and the family is definitely at the center of that. So, mm -hmm. um, why women still can't have it all was a huge piece for us in 2012. Um, we just published a piece last year, which was one of the most single most engaged with pieces of content on the web, although it was a magazine piece uh, called The Smartphone Generation, questioning the impact of smartphones on children today who are being brought up with, with, with smartphones in their everyday lives. 
So we have um, talked about the dramatic uh, shift in landscape for families over the course of the past few years, but we've not done it in such a dedicated way. So what we started to do, what we started to do in March was say, you know what, this is something we want to go all in on. We're going to um, create a dedicated editorial team with an editor or two, um, but somebody overseeing it and then people working across, you know, to bring that topic across platforms. So it's not simply stuff on the site or in the magazine, um, but dedicated newsletters, communities, events, um, and so on. And so mm-hmm. that that is something that previously um, we might not have been able to say, we're going to take 10 people and put them on it, you know, full time and, and go all in on this. But now we're able to do that, which is really exciting. Okay, so that is the type of sort of ambitious um endeavors you see coming down the pike? I think it's one type. I think it's one type for New sure. brands or no? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, we're not necessarily focused on that. I think the initial focus for our ambition is is the Atlantic's impact, increasing the Atlantic's impact. And that's just one example of how we can do that. Um, we're very focused on increasing our impact technologically, like I said. So adding more um, to our product and engineering teams, mm-hmm. for sure. I think that we think, um, you know, to the extent that we can be um, faster, provide better experiences, make sense on more platforms, or do things that are different. But but continuing to express our journalist our journalism in new ways is really important for us. Now this is something that we're able to focus on and do more of. How about the? I, I always ask people their revenue portfolio. You're <laughs> private, but I'll ask anyway. <laughs> um, a lot of people's revenue portfolios very heavily indexed into advertising over the last several years. Um, and there was a lot of good reasons for that. Uh, a lot of audiences were expanding at the time. Uh, Facebook was sending a lot of traffic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, are you looking to rebalance the revenue portfolio to, um, yes, you want advertising to continue to grow, I know that, but to get more from direct reader revenue? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, all businesses and all industries go through cycles. And I think we've seen before, you know, what can happen in a dramatic uh, shift of uh, in the world of advertising, for example. And um, there's no question that that our B2B business has outpaced our B2C business in terms of percentage of revenue. And so I think your ad business versus your direct reader. Exactly. Exactly. Quartz was was launched basically as a counterpoint to a subscription, right? I mean, because like The Economist, this is the way I look at it from the outside. I mean, The Economist was was throttling, you know, access because, um, you know, they were very adamant about subscriptions. And, and Quartz was basically saying, we're going to come at it from a different standpoint of doing ads, but high quality ads, um, you know, high CPM ads, and, and that will enable access. Yep, yep. Um, that was that was Quartz's ambition, and I think Quartz has done a phenomenal job of of to a degree reinventing the advertising landscape or how you how how anybody should be thinking about advertising being incorporated into a website, um, into a reader experience for mm-hmm. sure. Um, they've they've done a great job at that. Um, we have. Um, you know, we've maintained sort of separate ambitions and that we're saying, okay, as Quartz builds their brand and they build their audience, uh, they're going to go at it from a way that feels uh, most authentic to them and, and true to the mission that they started with, I think. Um, and, um, and for us, I think, you know, we have a different mission and, and like we were talking about before, 161 years of, of legacy to kind of build off of and think about, you know, where we go 
to in the future from there. So that means you got to get people to pay you, more people to pay you. It does. Yes, we people have, pay for people the magazine. I know, Civil forever. War, Civil War, people are paying. Yes. <laughs> that's right, that's right. But Be- Pre-Civil War, Brian. <laughs> okay, before 18, the Civil War. 1857. Um, yes. A few years before the Civil War. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, but, uh, you know, the digital model was an ad-driven model. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and you're just experimenting now. Not experimenting, but I mean, you, you've got yeah. You've got in place right. subscription membership options. Explain how you're going about figuring out uh, where that fits within the business model. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, I don't think we're trying to figure out where that fits within the business model. I think what, we, what we've certainly seen across the industry, but what we believe to be true across any industry is that when you've got an incredible product, people are willing to pay for it. And um, for a whole host of reasons, it's good for people to diversify their revenue portfolios. I don't have to tell you that. You right. sit with plenty of people like me, so you know. Um, so, so it's not a question so much of where it fits in within our revenue portfolio, but how do we... Well, I, let me just say, like, it is a question about like where it fits in as far as like whether it's 10%, 20%, or 50%. Isn't it? Uh, it's a question you could ask. And right now, <laughs> right, it's proportionately lower than our right. advertising portfolio. The, the, the maybe more strategic question is, you know, how much do we see that growing and where will we continue to place resources to um, demonstrate or reflect our ambition in that, in that topic terrain, right? Okay, let's answer that one. So then. I don't know that I have the answer in terms of <laughs> it was total your number question. of people. No, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 think it's the right, I think it's the right question. And I would say... Um, very honestly, we're, that's what we're trying to figure out right now is exactly um, the number of resources, the amount of resources that we put toward it. And I think you'll absolutely mm-hmm. continue to see that growing. I mean, we're growing that side of the business um, pr- uh, more right now from yeah. a talent perspective than the advertising side of the business in terms of just adding sheer number of people and, and to, to that portion and working on products based. But explain the, the product. Explain the, the subscription product. So right now we have um, we have a membership program called the Masthead. Um, you guys wrote about it not too long ago. And what it is is um, subscribers will pay and for um, their subscription they get access to they get access to the print magazine. They can get a digital copy of it. Um, and then they get access to more things across um, the portfolio. So that's everything from articles that we will publish on the site where only members can get access to it. So you sort of start reading the article and it's, if you want to continue reading this article, you, um, you know, become mm-hmm. a member if you're not so already So some one. content is only for members. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, we have weekly uh, conversations with editors and writers, whether it's on a cover story or just a single topic. I mean, people who love us most are the ones who so far have committed and said, we want to be members. We want more from the Atlantic. So naturally they're engaging more with our writers and our editors um, in ways that they couldn't before. So the same is true of um, of coming to some events, and so we'll invite mm-hmm. them to events that they would not previously have been invited to or have had a- have had access to. And then another example of that is, you know, we published a special issue um, which came out, I think, in February, uh, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King, um, and that was created for newsstands only, but we sent those copies to our our masthead subscribers just as a token of appreciation. We'll be right back after a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Teamwork has never been more important, and that's hard to pull off an environment like today's where everything is constantly changing. Enter Airtable. This is a tool that can fit your process, but it's also powerful enough that it keeps everyone on the same page. 
Time, for instance, uses Airtable to manage its entire creative process, from the original idea to the creation of the content to actually getting it out the door. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. Try it today. Visit Airtable.com slash Digiday to receive $50 in free credits. Thank you, Airtable. Now back to the episode. So I'm going to use a word I hate, but this is for like super fans. Okay. Right? These yeah. are like the hardcore Atlanta, yeah, Atlantic yeah. Why do you hate junkies. that word? We like super that. fans. Yeah, we like because them. it's like a marketing word. Um, <laughs> it's so true. Though, I, ed- they are. <laughs> I edited it out. Um, <laughs> yes. But so I mean, this is for um, you know, I don't know what it is. Ten percent, fifteen percent. I mean, yeah. most of the people. I mean, the Atlantic attracts a lot of people. Um, but you know, the 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 reality of a lot of brands, I feel like, is when they move into memberships and subscriptions, they find out their 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 true audience audience is actually a lot smaller than they've been looking at on Comscore or their analytics dashboard because the number of people who are who are really hardcore super fans mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is finite it's small you're not going to have 2 million of them right i don't know you're 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 right in terms of the proportion of the audience that we would dub super fans i think that's true of any brand but i wouldn't i wouldn't say that that's true for the that that's an accurate portrayal of the entire audience size i think that i think that any brand whether it's whether it's nike or mm-hmm. the atlantic i mean whoever sure. you are you have different levels of value that you provide to to different people they're looking for different things at different times and so i think what um what's incumbent upon publishers is to figure out you know how you provide different levels of value to the people who want different levels of value right the people who engage mm-hmm. with you differently the people who you know you have people who wake up every morning and think gosh i want nothing more than to know what the atlantic is thinking on this topic and then people who when you um, come across something you think this is the smartest take on this particular topic and it's important for me to know what the what the Atlantic thinks of this or see what the Atlantic is writing about this it's important for me to share this with my network um, but I may not go every single day it doesn't mean that I'm not willing to provide um, to pay for something that they could provide me more value mm-hmm. on that I couldn't get anywhere else so I think really what we have to do is figure out the different levels of of, of value based on the the mm-hmm. commitment of the of the reader of the person how about a meter system we see a lot of public Publishers just go into the meter system Mm -hmm. and and it's attractive because you just operate one product and then, you know, the numbers are the numbers. Like a certain number of people are going to come four or five times a month and you get them and and you focus on converting them. Yep. Um, Versus trying to figure out, um, okay, how do we add extra value through um, uh, access to editor newsletters and different, you know, different things like that. Right. I think so. I think what you're what you're describing is exactly what I'm describing. We're just saying it probably two different ways. I think the metered system provides a different level of value for somebody who says, yeah, maybe I'm not going to be there 100 times a month and maybe I don't want to pay $129 for you, but I do want to come to the Atlantic three, four, five, ten times a month. Um, and for that, I'm willing to pay X. Um, and so oh, so I- meter is... In the offing, or it's something is that- we're it's something we're we're talking about. It's something that we see a lot of other publishers whom we respect greatly, uh, having done a having done a phenomenal job with, and we've seen success with that across the 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 industry. And so, yeah. What's the downside do you, when you're thinking about it, like to moving to a meter model? I don't think there's a downside to the meter model. I think. 
um, more than anything, you want to make sure that you have the experience right and that you are um, technologically in a place to provide, uh, to, to ask the right questions of readers and to provide the, the right opportunities for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we had a meeting here uh, the other day and, and um, someone here had said, well, we're, we're really operating two different businesses here with you know the business that's supported through advertising and sponsorship and you know this new thing that we're trying to grow when it comes to membership and mm-hmm. i was like eh, not really but then i was like thinking i'm like eh, kind of sometimes right uh is that a risk for publishers that you're really tr- trying to balance these two op- almost opposing forces you know what i don't think of them as opposing forces i think they're different skill sets it's sort of exercising or flexing different muscles but i don't think they're opposing forces and i'll tell you why i think that what we've always strived to do with our advertising and as advertising has gotten more complex and as we've um as we've gotten deeper into the world of of content as advertising and working hard with brands to help tell their stories in a way that will resonate with our readers you know we've thought of advertising as being additive to the experience on the site. So it's not just about, hey, how can we take your money and put your story on the site and, you know, we can guarantee some sort of impressions, but actually how can we challenge ourselves to make sure that what we're creating on behalf of an advertiser is something that's as good that as good as we're creating on the editorial side that people would want to engage with, not because we're pushing it in their face, but because it's, it's compelling. It's compelling on its own. Journalistically, it's compelling. It's compelling from an experience perspective. And so because we've had that mindset on the advertising side, I think as we think about offering consumers more value, we're not thinking, how do we do it in a way where we can just get rid of the advertising? Because we believe that that truly that there is more value there than just the revenue um so when we think about the consumer side again like i said it's i I think it's more about flexing different muscles and thinking about um, getting into the mindset of an individual and what a person would pay for out of their own pocket versus Mm -hmm. what a company would pay for um with their with their corporate dollars and based on their corporate initiatives well it's funny because some publishers actually use the advertising as um as a cudgel to like get people to convert, mm-hmm. right? They say like, oh, you'll get an ad free or an ad light experience. Right. So then your interests, I think as a publisher to your audience are actually to increase the annoyance level to the point where people <laughs> will convert, which I've, look, Spotify, I think is built off of that personally, but um, I don't know. It's it, in that way, I can see it being like opposing. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. But we don't, I don't think we really view it that way. A quick break to remind you about the early access to the Digiday podcast that is available to you via Digiday Plus. That is our subscription program. If you join Digiday Plus, and I hope you will, you will get Digiday Magazine. We're just finishing a new issue now uh, for the summer. Invites to our exclusive member events, a steady stream of valuable research, briefings on uh, important conversations happening at our many summits around the world, and much more. It is only $395 a year, and it is very worth it. Sign up now. Visit Digiday.com, and you will see the Digiday Plus tab in the menu bar. Now back to my conversation with Haley. So what is the, what, what is the role of, of advertising as part of the portfolio going forward then? I mean, there's a, a drumbeat of negativity around advertising with the duopoly taking all the growth and, and that. Um, and there's, look, advertising has always been a tough business, and it's still tough. Yeah. Um, there's no question that we're not sure where the future lies in terms of, um, 
in terms of the advertising industry continuing to go direct to publishers versus, you know, taking advantage of the, the duopoly and doing things um, uh, more openly or through programmatic means. So I don't know that I have all the answers in terms of what the future of that looks but like. Direct but direct sold advertising is still, you still see it as still a, an important part of a very, sort of yeah, strategy. yeah, a very important part of our strategy for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, it's still growing for us. And uh, for example, in the month of March, we had our largest ever advertising booking revenue month in the history of the Atlantic, which is exciting. And it tells us that people still have a ton of interest in what we're doing. Um, and we've got a, a really incredible team working with our brand partners to figure out the right solutions for them uh, to reach our audience. There's also a real need. I mean, the, the, the need for advertisers to reach the audience that we have is not going to go away or that audiences that publishers have is not going to go away. Mm -hmm. I mean, companies need to connect with individuals. The question is, how do they do it? What's the smartest, best way to do it? And I think that... Um, and, and in that area, you think you have a, a competitive or a, a more compelling offering than than Google and Facebook, which can slice and dice um, audiences in any number of ways. I do, I do. I, th you know, call me old-fashioned, um, but I think that there's a lot of value that publishers provide that platforms can't provide. And I think people are turning to publishers to more than anything else, help make sense of all of the dramatic changes that are happening in the world today. And so where the Atlantic fits in um, from that perspective is we are giving people the opportunity to understand and think about things differently as we always have, but at a time when it's as necessary as ever to do so. And when you think about the, the mindshare that we occupy, right, because, um, because people really do want our content because we are investing in the journalistic um, in the journalistic forces behind creating that content. You know, we, we, we report with deep rigor and analysis on topics that you won't necessarily find platforms doing. Mm -hmm. um, that matters. That really does matter to people. And it matters to companies too because they think, gosh, if, if you're doing this, you're going out there and doing this, and I as a person need to understand this or I want to understand this, the people we're trying to reach probably have the same needs. And if that's the case, you know, what is the best way to um, partner, to take advantage of the fact that they're here, right? The audience is there. We want to reach these people. They are spending time on your platform. We're seeing um, subscriptions grow, first of all, from a print perspective, but also from a digital perspective. And time spent continue to increase on the site, which is demonstrative of the value that we're providing to, to audiences. Then really, of course, it's up to advertisers to say, do we want to reach them here? Or do we want to reach them here? I mean, they have certainly efficiency challenges and and um, targeting needs that platforms can provide them that publishers are not um, necessarily in the same spaces. But I think we're in a little bit of a different business. Mm -hmm. um, so but basically, the big question is, are advertisers willing to pay more money? I mean, right, because I, I think a lot of times when these brand safety sort of hullabaloo's pop up. You know, I, I, we get very cynical about it here because advertisers all come out and they and they make these noises, but then they never change their actual spending patterns, um, because you know ultimately, I think we put in a headline: it's the ROI stupid. Like they're always going to go to um, the platforms because the platforms are quote unquote efficient, which means they're cheaper and uh, they, they can reach their goals a lot yeah. uh, cheaper. Um, to some degree, that is, there, there's no question that that's a cynical take on it. If I, I wouldn't say <laughs> yeah. it's wrong It's raining per se. in New York this morning. <laughs> that's right. And, and we're New Yorkers. So I, I, I hear you on that. I don't think that that take is wrong per se. I think, I think you're right. I mean, advertisers have a responsibility to prove to, um, to their companies and to their executive teams that what they're doing is reaching the people that they say they're reaching 
preaching. But at the same time, I think that people understand more than ever that brand safety is important and that you need to be in an environment that is credible. And you want to understand the environment that you're in. And especially when you're looking to reach um, an audience of, of influentials and people who are driving change in society, that's where the Atlantic really starts to thrive. And that's where we're seeing our partners come back to us year after year saying, how can you help, um, help us get smarter, help us think of new ways to drive engagement with these audiences, help us connect in ways that we haven't. And that's why mm-hmm. our um, content business is thriving so much um, because we do provide when you say them, content, like uh, providing content, content for brand yeah, content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It, talk to me about that because I mean, you guys were early on it. Now yeah. everyone has a content offering. And right. I think the sort of, I'm going to be cynical again. Now <laughs> the, the sort of rule of thumb. I can beat you with my cynicism. So it, it <laughs> The rule of thumb me. in digital media is everything gets commoditized. CPMs have only gone in one direction in the history of CPMs and that's down. Um, and a lot of people uh, spun up these uh, content studios and that was then the big sort of hope. Um, and then they get commoditized. Everyone has one. So how, how does that not just follow the rule of thumb that like everything gets commoditized and particularly agency businesses? I mean, look, agency businesses have never been uh, really uh, thriving great high margin area. Yeah. Um, just because something gets commoditized doesn't mean that you can't still stand out as the best. Okay. So there's no question. There's been the, the, the proliferation of, um, branded content studios and publisher content studios has been, uh, fast and, and wide, um, to be sure. But because we were early, what we've been able to do is iterate on ourselves. Um, figure out the lessons that we need to learn, figure out where we can continue to have competitive advantages. And again, I sound a little bit like a broken record when I say this, but it is about staying true to who we are. And so when we think about why we started our branded content studio, it wasn't simply that there's a business opportunity, although it was about a business opportunity. But the philosophy wasn't just about, well, wow, we can do something that kind of mimics our site and gives advertisers the opportunity to um, quickly snatch up readers because they think it's editorial content. Mm-hmm. Our, our founding philosophy was actually, it, it, it was that um, native is a sensibility, not a format. And what we meant by that and what we still mean by that is we hold ourselves to the um, highest standards editorially and we want to do the same on the advertising side. And so what we aim to do with each piece of content that we create for a partner is, is, is this something that, that our editors would write? Would they care about this? Could it compete mm-hmm. with our editorial content? And, and for that reason alone, we see people continue to come back and come back to us. Um, we, have, we have almost a 90% renewal rate with our native advertisers. And it's still very profitable. Partners. For sure, for sure. But, but you know, the model gets increasingly complex as people want to do new things and, and um, create more content um, for themselves to run on their own their their own properties. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases, their own properties, um, and and they want more services from us, which is actually good. So then we have to start to think about, okay, what is the business that we're in? What are, what are the services that we provide? I mean, so it's everything from, um, insights and research to, to content, to media and, and everything in between, right. Consulting, um, helping people really kind of understand audiences, how to connect with them. 
for themselves or through through our distribution mechanisms. Okay, let's also talk about the international opportunity mm-hmm. um, because I think it's an interesting for the brand yep. because um, I always think of the Atlantic as as being about the American idea, uh, and yet I, I guess the American idea is 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 morphing itself these days. Um, you guys have recently started to to do some international expansion. Explain the strategy there. Yeah. So so this was built off the insight that we started to notice a couple years ago, uh, probably about five years ago, that about 30% of our audience was coming from outside of the U.S. without us having a real specific strategy to reach those people outside of the U.S., and so, so our cynical selves said, okay, well, this just, this must just be a bunch of Americans, expats who've moved outside of the States and they just continue to want to read the Atlantic. So that's what they're doing. And then we said, well, why don't we just, just test ourselves? Why don't we take a look and see if um, that hypothesis is true? And we quickly found out actually that it's not true, that, that the audience is not simply a bunch of expats who are familiar with the Atlantic, but in fact, they look and feel like our, our, our U.S.-based audience. Um, they are, they are uh, arbiters of, of change. They are generally optimistic about um, the future. They are running companies. They're running communities. Um, they are people who care deeply about the issues that are happening around the world um, and, and want to know more. And that's why they're coming mm-hmm. to the Atlantic. So when we started to say, oh, wow, there's a real viable audience there. What if we made a deliberate attempt to, to write for them? You know, how could we figure out what it is they want more of and how can we do that? So that's where um, we started to say, okay, there's real opportunity internationally. And then we tried, or we're trying to as strategically as possible, figure out, you know, where we can go in and be the most authentic, you know, initially and say, okay, what, what is um, not simply an extension of our American selves, um, but how can we build off of what we've done so well uh, in the States for 160 years? How can we do that outside? And so we... Um, we are building an editorial team first in, in Europe and then around the world. I mean, we've had people around the world covering for us mm-hmm. for a long time. But that's more as like foreign correspondent Correct. is different than, than having someone. I don't know, because you have to like shift. Are, are you, do you Correct. have someone like, you know, in London? Being we do, like, oh, we they, do. They, they call them lorries here and lifts. Uh, or right. are you writing for that audience? Right, right. And I think yeah. that's a little bit of a difference. Yeah, no. So, so, so what we want to do is, is both help explain America to the world and, and. Oh my God, that's a really <laughs> tough one. <laughs> I don't know. We can explain it so much to ourselves. So yeah, the, it's no short order that we've put on ourselves. Um, we want, we want to do that, but we also want to do it in a way that people, you know, are, are looking for and help, help explain the world to the world to the extent that we can from an Atlantic perspective. <laughs> Is this actually a good time to be trying to do that? I mean, in that's some a, ways, there's more yeah. there's more curiosity than ever. I think, <laughs> and I, my own like personal story is my my father in law is Serbian and, and he's in uh, Belgrade, and he is like a gigantic Rachel Maddow fan. Oh, he's he's so watching funny. Rachel Maddow all the time. Very funny. In, uh, in you Serbia. know what? I think I I do think, and maybe this is the the um, eternal optimist in me, but. I think that certainly we know in this country it's it's more fractured than ever. Our editor in chief said it best when he said that um, the Atlantic was made for times like these. And I think at a time of great fracturing, you know, here but also abroad, um, where people are as divisive on issues as they've ever been, you're also finding on the flip side of that that people recognize that there's a real need to be open-minded and to learn from other other 
sides of issues. So um, on the one hand, it would be easy to take that cynical approach and say, now it's not really the right time because people seem less open. But I think that as people are seemingly less open, you have Mm -hmm. um, this kind of growing um, underbelly of people who are saying, no, 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 we really do need to to open up and we need to show people the benefits of that. And so, um, yeah, I I may be the eternal optimist, but I, I think... It's, it's the perfect time, mm-hmm. quite frankly, to o- open people's eyes and show them actually there's more to what, you're, what you think you know. How are you going to make money off this? <laughs> um, we're, well, you know what? In a few months, why don't I uh, let, you know, <laughs> okay. let you know how we're doing? But Step initially, the, the, that's right. Initially, you know, it's an advertising-based strategy. We've got a team there. I've, got a, I've, I've uh, launched a team of people in London over the course of the past couple of months, we'll continue to build um, as we see the business growing and the demand for the brand growing over there. But so far, you know, people have been extremely optimistic and receptive to the Atlantic, taking a more strategic and deliberate approach to um, to to being there. Mm-hmm. And so London to start, but looking at other markets or for now, just just London? Um, no, we're all over Europe. We're all over Europe, but based in London. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Haley, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. It's been great. Thank you all for listening. This podcast is produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, please subscribe. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now also on Spotify and Anchor FM. And while you're there, rate us and leave a review. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with a new episode.